right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? What's that? Ooh, that was good. I actually heard a yow. Nice. All right. I love it. Let's, let's keep that energy going. Uh, welcome, guys, here in-house. I love you guys out there online, wherever you are or whenever you are. Um, just thankful that you're here. Thankful that we all can gather together in this place or online or wherever we are. Um, even if you're out there thousands of miles away, we're gathering together to be able to um, just to celebrate and lift up Jesus. And so that's what we hope to do today, but glad that you're here. Um, I've got a message today that I think the Lord kind of gave me a direction on, and I'm just really looking forward to sharing that with you. So I want to get right to it. We are in uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we've called it Jesus the Servant Messiah. And the reason we called it that is because the Gospel of Mark, more than any of the other Gospels, I think just focuses on These are the miraculous things that Jesus did, but more so than, here's the source. And that source of the miraculous that Jesus was able to to tap into and and exhibit here while he was here on earth is that very same Holy Spirit that resides in all of us. So when we look at the stories that we see in Mark, and again, it's just one rapid-fire miracle after another, it's not to call attention to the miracles, which... They themselves, I'm sure, were very meaningful to the people experiencing that that healing or whatever that was, but more so to call attention to the source of that power. And again, that very source resides in us today, those followers of Christ, those disciples of Christ. Now we carry that within us. And so that's what this Gospel of Mark is all about. We have been talking about uh, for several weeks, by the way, if you're new here or if you're out there online and if you missed any of them, you can go back to our YouTube channel or through our website directly, which is discovercommunity.church, and watch all of the archives. And so you can get caught up if you want or, or catch any of them. Um, but let's get into it. Last week, so we're teaching through uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and line by line in some cases where we're teaching through. I want you to have a full understanding of the Gospel of Mark. And so last time that we got together, we were talking about this scene where Jesus had been walking through the, through the town, basically, kind of down by the docks, probably not the best part of town, but he was walking through there and looked over and saw Matthew, Matthew, who also is called Levi, and he saw him and called him to follow called him to be a disciple of Christ. And what, what did he say? He just simply said, follow me. How amazing is that, that Matthew, who had spent his entire life, everything that he had, everything that he knew was built around who he was, which was a tax collector, but that's what he knew, that's what he was good at, that's where his livelihood and his identity were all wrapped up into that. But then when Jesus just said, follow me, he dropped everything and went to follow Matthew. And what an incredible story that was. And we know that Matthew's heart just must have been bursting with this thought that, that this man, this Christ, was calling me. And he called him, <coughs> called him to follow him, but then also to just enjoy the fellowship along with the disciples. Probably something that Matthew didn't have very often. And so what he does is he invites them all to a party, for lack of a better word. Some scripture says a reception or a gathering 
at Matthew's home. And Matthew would have probably had a fairly nice home, at least comparatively. So more room and more resources to to throw a pretty good party. Well, that's where they are. And so not only is Jesus and his disciples there, but also some of the people who have been, out of curiosity, following him around. For different motives. Some is just curiosity. Some, like the Pharisees that were in the crowd, wanted to keep an eye on Jesus. Because at this point, they weren't quite sure what they thought of this Jesus guy. You know, he's kind of, seems kind of a rogue, and some of the things he says are borderline heresy, but, but he is teaching the word, and he is teaching it correctly. So we're not quite sure what we think, but we better stay close to him and figure out really what we think about this guy. Also in the crowd is a collection of other people. That's what we're going to talk about here in just a second. But where we ended up last week was this question. They posed this question because, again, Jesus, this, this rabbi, revered teacher, he's gaining quite a following, is sitting down with tax collectors and a collection of other sinners, and they throw out this question to him like, hey, why are you hanging out with these people? And those people that posed the question were the Pharisees in the crowd. And Jesus' answer was this, Mark 2.17. This is from last week, but just a reminder. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So that was the end of last week. Then we move into... Same chapter, but we're going to move into verse 18. And verse 18 begins a series of parables. And Jesus teaches some parables kind of in response to that question that they're asking. Now, if you've ever wondered what the parable of the the wedding fast, of the old cloth, and the wineskins, if you've ever wondered what those have in common, we're going to answer that today. Most of us, if you've spent any length of time in church at all, you have probably heard a teaching on one or all three of those subjects. And sometimes they're taught in isolation. They'll just pull one of those out and teach on that. And that's valid. There's, there's very much meaning in that. But I like to go and look in the context. And so when you see at this one event, in response to a particular challenge, Jesus fires out these three parables, rapid fire, one right after another. I think there's got to be meaning in that. I think there has to be something there where they're all tied together. And you could teach them in isolation, yes, but we look at the big picture here. So I think that's what we're going to do. So let's take a look. Mark 2.18 starts out the scene for today. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So remember, they're at this, they're at this shindig, this get-together at Matthew's house. And so Jesus and his disciples, Matthew included, are probably feasting. They're having a good old time. And the people in the crowd who are asking this question are a combination of two different types of people. There's Pharisees, and then there's John's disciples. Now, who are John's disciples? John the Baptist is what they're talking about specifically here. So disciples of John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist traveling around before Christ, heralding the arrival of Christ, had his own disciples who were following him around. And so they're in, mixed in this crowd, and they're asking him this question. 
Why did John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, to be clear, um, and the Pharisees probably would have got along fairly well. They probably had more in common than differences. Think about this. John the Baptist was, um, Scripture tells us that he was raised, basically raised in the desert. Now, he wasn't literally raised in the desert, but he was raised with this sect of of very strict um, Jews, uh, a sect, and they were called the Essenes. And so he was raised with them, he was schooled with them, and they were strict. So they, were, they, they had all kinds of very strict rules, celibacy, uh, very monastic, kind of simplistic sort of life, fasting, prayer. Um, they, they very regularly baptized and things like that. So that's, that's where he was born and raised. And so his followers would have been very much like that too. So very, very, very strict. And so the question then arises when they ask, why do they fast? So They're asking this question, which must have been somebody observed and said, look, this group of people over here are fasting, and yours are having a good time. They're they're partying. They're they're doing whatever they want. They're eating. They're drinking. They're doing all this, and yet they're over here fasting. Now, the ones fasting would have been John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees. Quite a contrast. So we're not exactly sure who's asking the question here. It just says they. They came and said to him. So somebody notices the difference, points it out. And here's what we need to know. Fasting was very much a, a, um, it was a law. It was laid out in Leviticus. It said you must fast, but only once a year. There was only one for, uh, for a devout Jew. There was only one time of the year where you were required to fast. Now, that's a corporate fast. There were times for individual fasts, for repentance, for, for a specific reason that you would do that, and, and you would do that all throughout the year. But as far as a corporate fast, we're all fasting together, really the law just laid out one time. But what had happened, though, is that the Pharisees, in true Pharisee tradition, said, well, if a little is good, a lot's better. If the law says we only have to do it once a year, for a specific reason, let's do it every week, and let's do it twice a week. So if a little's good, a lot's got to be better, right? If a little makes us holy, a lot's got to make us even more holy. That's their mindset, and they got this from Mosaic Law. So they're not wrong in, their, in where their heart lied, maybe, but they took it to the extreme, just like they always did. So that actually comes from Leviticus, Leviticus 16 29 to 31. I'll read that to you. This lays out the requirements of that once yearly fast. Now, it's a period of fasting. Leviticus 16, 29 to 31. This shall be a permanent statute for you. This is Moses laying this out, right? Or the Lord laying it out to Moses. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble yourselves and not do any work, whether the native or the stranger who resides among you. For it is on this day... That atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you so that you may humble yourselves. It is a permanent statute. Now, you know, if you've been coming here, you know that I like to pull out the Greek and the Hebrew every now and then and talk about the meaning. 
When you look at that word permanent, this is to be a permanent statue. Well, in the Hebrew, it means permanent. And in the Greek, it means permanent. There's no subtlety or variation of what that means. When it says this is a permanent statute, that's what it means. It's permanent. And they took that, they took that to heart. And in fact, to this day, this month in the Hebrew calendar is called Tishri. And it corresponds roughly to the months of September and October. And there's several different festivals that go on in that time. It starts out with the Feast of Trumpets, then moves into uh, the ten- on the 10th day, the Atonement Festival, which is then, and then it moves into the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they all go one after another, and that's, that's this time that Leviticus is laying out here, this time of corporate fasting uh, and, and corporate um, tradition and ritual is all wrapped up into that. So again, the Pharisees said, okay, well, we're being commanded to do that once a year. How much better will we be if we do this twice a week, every week throughout the entire year? And that's what they had adopted. So there's no scripture that adopts that for them. They actually took it upon themselves and said, if a little's good, then a lot's better, right? So that's where they are. So you see that in this occasion, the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist that were there, they were fasting twice a week. And so it probably this party or this get-together happened on the day of fasting for them. So they're fasting, they're withholding, they're being solemn. And and can you imagine you're sitting there at this get-together? These people are drinking wine, they're eating, they're having fun, they're laughing, they're doing all these things. And you're standing over here fasting with your friends. That's got to be quite a contrast in your heart. Like, why do they get to and we don't? So this is that, that heart issue that they've got going on right here. Aren't you thankful? Looking at that, looking at this. That, now, let me take a second. The Pharisees always get a bad rap. The Pharisees are always kind of made out to be the bad guy in just about every teaching that you, that you hear. But really, the Pharisees, their heart was the better we stick to the law, the better we do exactly what we've been told to do, the better everyone's going to be. That wasn't just for them individually. They thought if we do this and if we're really strict and we're really, really diligent about following the letter of the law as best we can, even better if we can, then our nation will be made holy through what we do. That's what they thought. So they weren't always bad guys. But the gospel of Jesus Christ accomplished all of that. Everything they devoted their life to following accomplished all of that for us once and for all. Aren't you thankful of that? All that ritual, all that tradition, all of that burdensome law that that we had to spend their entire lives, every day of their lives, trying to do their best to live up to it and failing miserably in most cases. Jesus accomplished that once and for all. Paul reminds us of that in Romans, Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. I'll just read this for you. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, Pharisees thought that the holier they could be, the better chance they would literally turn away God's wrath just by doing the right thing. Verse 10 For while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul says that, and that's a great illustration of the difference between doing rituals, all those religious things to try and turn away God's wrath versus simply accepting that through Jesus' blood we are reconciled. So back to Mark, Mark 2, verses 19, uh, Mark 2, verse 19. So remember, Jesus is answering this question. Let's go back. Mark 2, 18. The question was, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not pass, do not fast? That's the question that he's being asked. And his response is here in 2.19. And Jesus said to them, while the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Now imagine you're either one of the Pharisees or a disciple of John the Baptist, and you're asking this question. What kind of answer are you expecting? Like, can I just have like an actual straightforward answer? And he says a parable about the wedding feast and the, the groom and the attendants, and you're like, what is he talking about? Can he just give us a straight answer? I know that's how I would be. Like, don't make me think. Just tell me. But the short answer here really is because Jesus' disciples are not mourning. They're not in a place of sadness. They're not in a place of mourning. See, the Pharisees thought that sacrifice in itself was pleasing to God. And the more we sacrifice, the more pleasing we are to God. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching against right here. And the lesson, the lesson is a really an important one for here and today, for us in the church today. I mean the corporate church worldwide. And the lesson is this. All outward expression of religion, all outward expression of religion, especially that which is designed and implemented by, by man, should only be observed when it's because of an outpouring of your heart. And any religion, any expression of religion that is devoid or separate from the outpouring of your heart is dead. Is dead and pointless. Let me repeat that again. All outward expression of religion designed by man should only be observed when they are genuine expressions of what's in your heart. Because any expression of religion outside of what's in your heart is dead. And I think when people say the term, we've probably all heard it, somebody will say, I hate religion. I can't stand religion. I feel that way. And when they say that, that's what they mean. All of this ceremony, all of this law, all of this legalism, all of dress this way, talk this way, do this, think that, eat this, eat that, all of that. It's just dead religion unless it comes from your heart. And that turns off more people. If you just do it just because this is what we always do, I don't even know why. We just do it. Or you're doing it for show or worse, that it's an absolute phony show. That's what causes people to say, I hate religion. But going back here, now, what we see in the disciples... Let me read the scripture again. Mark 2.19, and Jesus said to them, while the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Why can't they fast? Because fasting is not 
Fasting is for repentance. It's for mourning. It's for a time, at least in Jewish law at that time it was. He's saying the disciples, my disciples are not a bride pining away for some groom that can't be found. They're not hoping that someday their groom will come and they're, and they're just in this place of sadness and mourning, but they are a joyous bride preparing for their wedding day in the presence of the groom. The difference in mindset between the two should be something that is visible in all disciples of Christ. We are not pining away for something that will come someday. We are rejoicing in the here and now because the groom is here with us. Christ is with us, and we should, we should celebrate that. Mourning has its place, okay? Repentance and fasting and all those things have their place. But more often than not, we should be joyous. We should be celebrating who we are in Christ, and that will separate us. John's disciples, remember John the Baptist's disciples, had heard this idea recently, but they probably, like most people at that time, couldn't really connect what was going on. In John's gospel, not John the Baptist, different John, John the Bapt- uh, John's gospel, John 3, verses 22 to 30. Let me read it to you. This is a back and forth between John the Baptist and his disciples. So remember, John the Baptist traveling around the Galilee before Jesus baptizing people, heralding the arrival of the one who is to come, doing all that, and his disciples then, they're having this little back and forth. John 3, 22 to 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and while he was spending time with them and baptizing, and and while there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, so John the Baptist doing his thing in the Galilee, baptizing people. He's got his own disciples. And now Jesus is in the same area baptizing with his disciples. Now, John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was an abundance of water there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So this is that same, kind of about the same period. So John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus, who just came from nowhere suddenly, baptized him, and then Jesus began his ministry. John the Baptist is continuing his ministry. Then, verse 25, then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. When it says about a Jew, it was probably a Pharisee, but we don't know for sure but about this ritual of purification. Remember, Jews, the Pharisees, they baptized all the time, but they thought it was a physical, literal, actual purification that you received through the water. And John the Baptist, being in a sin, had very much that same mindset too. And they, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, they're referring to Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all the people are coming to him. You could see them just saying like, hey, baptism's our thing. We, we are the ones who, ba- your name is John, the- I don't know if they called him John the Baptist at the time, John the Baptizer. That's our deal. And this guy is all of a sudden doing the same thing. He's baptizing and he's getting his own disciples. They're just, they're indignant over this. John replied, verse 27, 
A person can receive not even one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. And here's where it ties into what we're talking about. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. He's referring to himself. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So they've heard him say that. He's taught that to them. They've heard it in response to their complaint about Jesus. And here they are in the presence of Jesus, and they're still going like, what's the difference here? They're still having a hard time reconciling this. Mark 2.20, Jesus continues on with the parable of the bridegroom. But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and they'll fast on that day. So when that day comes, they'll have a reason to mourn and to fast. Now, this is a clue. This scripture in itself, leave it up there for a second, is a clue about what's going to happen. That phrase where it says, is taken away. Those three words, okay, in the Greek are actually just one word, but it's a kind of a word picture, and that word is apario. And that word means, the actual definition of that word is to be forcefully or painfully separated. So Jesus is actually explaining to them, look, the groom is with you now. One day, he will be forcefully and painfully removed from you. And you can fast on that day. You can mourn on that day. Now, moving on to the second parable in this group. Remember, there's three. So look at all three of these, and we're kind of trying to put together how they all relate. Mark 2.21, he goes right from talking about the bridegroom into this one. Mark 2.21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. Do we have anybody here who's ever tried to do that? When it talks about a patch, it's talking about probably new, new uh, maybe a skin or, or some new cloth. And if it hasn't been shrunk and you put it on something that's older that has been shrunk or worn out, all of a sudden, rather than to try and make the situation better, you're probably going to make it worse because instead of one hole or one tear that you're trying to patch, now every point where it's sewn on, as that piece then shrinks at a different rate, it's going to end up tearing, and you'll end up being worse, right? It's just not something you want to make sure that they have um, the same wear on them or the same characteristics so that it doesn't end up worse when you're trying to patch it and make it better. That's the practical standpoint, but what he's trying to illustrate here, when he says a worse tear results, what worse tear could result from this situation, if we apply this to things spiritual, specifically an old and a new covenant, what could be worse? I think what he's referring to here specifically is division over legalism. You have the Pharisees, you have the followers of John the Baptist, and then you have Jesus and his followers, and Jesus and his followers are experiencing a new thing. They're experiencing freedom not absolutely abolishing the law by any means, but freedom within the law. And yet the Pharisees and John the Baptist followers were very much there and they're button heads. And that tearing then, that division over legalism continues today, doesn't it? 
We see that all the time where legalism causes problems within churches, within families, within friends. That idea of legalism, when we try and take the new thing and apply it or attach it to the old thing, trouble almost always happens. That's exactly what he's talking about here. The fabric, if you will, of the new covenant is just not compatible with the old fabric, this old clothing of self-righteousness that the Pharisees and John the Baptist followers were wearing at that time. Jesus, to paraphrase Jesus, in other words, he's saying, don't apply your dead rituals to my new thing. Don't do that. See, going all the way back to the beginning of time, there was this understanding of what righteousness was. Even if we go back, so there's the old covenant, and then there's the new covenant of Christ, but even before that, there were other covenants. And Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, now it's over 4,000 years old. Job had an idea of what righteousness was and what a covenant was and how you got it. Job 29.4, Job says this, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a headband. How did he get righteousness? Anybody remember how he attained righteousness in his time? It certainly wasn't a gift. It was something you worked for. It was something you did things to attain. Right before this, he had said, I fed the poor. I helped the orphan. I comforted the widow. And he literally says, their righteousness will be credited to me. So in other words, I did something good for you and for you and for you, and your righteousness then will become mine because I did something good for you. That's what Job was all about, is just do to get. And then conversely, if you don't do, you don't get. That was purely Job's idea. Then Moses came along and received the law. And with that law came then the old covenant and a different understanding. Close but different understanding. Let me read a couple sections from you. First one is Deuteronomy 6, 17, 18. Now, this is is given to Moses, right? Moses is relaying this. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his provisions and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord so that it may go well for you. And that you may go in and take possession of the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So very literally, right, this isn't, he's not making them guess. This isn't a parable. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord so that it may go well for you. That's exactly it. And then this section, which is really where the Pharisees kind of take their marching orders. Deuteronomy 6, 24, 25. So the Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our own good always and for our survival as it is today. Verse 25, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to follow all the commandments before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And it will be, credit, it will be our righteousness if we are careful to follow all this commandment. Remember, he had just laid out all kinds of commandments, so many laws, so many rules, dictating every single portion of their life. And they're saying it will be righteousness for us if we follow these to the letter. That's where the Pharisees get their their orders. Now, 
coming forward from that time, from Moses just a little bit, to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said this, and this is a bit of a foreshadowing of something better than the law that's coming. Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a groom puts on a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's something far better than the covenant of just simply adhering to the law, but it would be hundreds of years after Isaiah before that new thing in Jesus Christ came. So then there's the first two parables then. Let's move into the third and probably the most well-known, most often taught on parable. This is Mark 2.22. And note, remember, he just goes from right one to the other. No segues in between, one to the other. Mark 2.22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. How many people have heard that taught on at one point or another? A lot. It's, it's very, very common. Let me tell you from a practical standpoint what this looks like. Wine, if you don't know, wine, you get the grapes, you crush the grapes, and essentially you end up with grape juice at that time. You don't end up with wine at, right after you crush the grapes. And then you set that aside and it ferments. And as it ferments, the yeasts and things inside there then produce gases, and it turns into alcohol, creates alcohol in there. But along with that, all kinds of gases, all kinds of pressure. Let me tell you what this looked like in my house when I was a kid, this, this image that I cannot get out of my mind. My father, my father was good at everything he ever did, still is. He could, he could do anything, and he was always just immediately an expert at anything that he did, almost an expert. Shortly after this period where he went through of making his own cheese, where we had our own cheese in our house, and it was, it was great, then he switched and said, well, I want to make, I want to learn how to make wine. So my dad started trying to, to make wine in our house, and he produced this batch, and it looked really good, and so he put it in these bottles and jammed the cork in the bottles and set them up on uh, the shelf in the basement to ferment. Here's the problem, though. <laughs> which we didn't realize at the time because we left home and we went on a vacation for several days. We came back home only to find out that the pressure inside the bottles had blown up all of the wine bottles all over the basement and our basement was coated, walls, ceiling everywhere with this sticky wine mess created by the pressure inside the bottles. That is a lesson I will never forget. I don't know when it will be handy to me, but I'll never forget how that works. See, with all that gas, you can't just put, back in the time of Jesus, you couldn't just take that grape juice and put it in jars. They didn't really have too many bottles at that time, right? But it was, it was all jars, like earthenware jars, and any pressure would just blow that jar apart. So they had to wait until that fermentation process was finished. So what they did is they put it inside wineskins. They put it inside, literally inside the skin of an animal sewn together. Now, those skins were soft, they were stretchable, and they could grow and expand with the pressure. They could accommodate that pressure until the wine was done fermenting, and then they put it in the jars, right? So that's practically how that worked. But let me show you a picture, and this is an image that I found 
um, that I think kind of illustrates a lot of this idea to us. So this is an image of a wineskin. This is actually a Bedouin in the uh, area of Petra, modern day. Well, I say modern day, it's 2015. But this is what it looks like. Those of you who picture like a small wineskin or anything, this is really more accurately what it looked like. A big, like a full, maybe a deer or some kind of an animal hide that they would sew and they would fill it full of wine. And then, though, they couldn't just lay it on the ground or put it on a shelf. It had to hang from this apparatus, kind of a, of a tripod thing in this picture. But that's what it looked like, kind of fragile, certainly bulky and hard to carry around. You wouldn't take that on the road with you, right? It didn't travel with you. It would just sit there until it fermented, until it was finished fermenting. Now, here, let's take that. Go ahead and leave that image up there for just a little bit. That image there of wine. In this parable, that new wine is the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And the problem comes <coughs> when we <clears throat> excuse me, when we try and take the new wine, the new covenant of Christ, and we try and put it into containers, vessels that were made for the old thing. See, these skins, once these skins were done, once that wine fermented, it would stretch to accommodate all the gas, but then it was done. They would throw it away, or maybe they made something out of it, but it was no good for a wine skin anymore. Because if you tried to put more wine and reuse that container, all the stretch was gone. And it would just blow up, and you would lose the wine. It would ruin everything. The idea of this... Old Covenant law, if we look at that wineskin as being this container of Old Covenant law, you try and put new thing in that. Jesus is a new thing. The New Covenant, the wine of the New Covenant, into that old skin, you're going to have problems. And that's exactly the, the parable that he's trying to teach here. And just as this wineskin would burst, their minds, their hearts, they could not deal with trying to take the New Covenant of Christ and attaching it to the old thing. See, there was, so much, there was so much apparatus and structure around the old thing, around this old wineskin that stands and all kinds. If you did have to transport it, it was complicated. So there was all kinds of mechanisms and apparatus and structure and everything around what this old wineskin was. It was unwieldy. It was hard to manage. And it had to be attached to an apparatus that was designed to hold its weight. We apply that to the idea of the old covenant. The weight, the burden of the law had created its own apparatus, its own structure to accommodate the burden of the old covenant law. And it wasn't portable. It was difficult. It was unwieldy. And it required people who devoted their whole lives just to try and maintain that apparatus. And it became a problem. Paul, uh, not Paul, in, uh, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come. Remember, that old wineskin represents the old covenant law. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things itself, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year, make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, would not they have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, 
would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Think about that. If we think about what's going on here, they're they're basically saying, would not the sacrifice, if that sacrifice was enough to atone for sins, wouldn't that have stopped when they just did it once? Wouldn't once be enough? Through Christ it is. But we have this reminder. And those people who insist on applying the law, who insist on mourning when there shouldn't be mourning, insist on that ritualistic reminder of sins, they're doing exactly what this Hebrews 10 is saying. Through those sacrifices, through that ritual, through that mourning, through that self, that beating yourself up over sins and who you used to be, all that is is a reminder of sins past. Why do we go back there? Why do we allow the devil to take us back there and remind us of that time after time after time? Then we're just exactly the same as the Pharisees standing on the side saying, I'll join the party when I'm not mourning anymore. Satan wants to keep us in that place. The blood of bulls and goats is not enough to take away sin. The blood of Jesus is. And the blood of Jesus is that new covenant, that new covenant that is made and put into your hearts. So whereas we look at that wineskin, that wineskin that represents the old covenant, the old thing, it was hard to deal with, it was a pain, it was bulky, required all kinds of things around it to keep it going. This is the illustration the Lord gave me. This is a new wineskin. And this is where the new covenant resides. The new covenant, and this represents, it's in your heart, and it's portable, and it can be taken with you. And that's the point of this. Rather than a big wineskin with old wine that's designed to be in one place, and it's hard, and it's heavy, and it's certainly not portable to take around and share with people, we now have the wine of the new covenant, and we have it in us. And we are then tasked with taking it out into the world and sharing it with those people who are dying of thirst. So we're not supposed to be tethered to and and stuck in this old covenant thing, trying to maintain the old thing. This new covenant is filled with truth and grace. Truth and grace and life. And yes, it represents the heart of sinners like you and me but filled with a new thing, filled with a new thing, renewed and reconciled, empowered by the Holy Spirit to take this very thing, this blood of the new covenant, and take it into the world and share it with people who are dying of thirst. Hebrews 10, 11 11 to 17, let me read it to you. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts 
and write them on their mind. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will no longer remember. That is the freedom. And that is the blood of Christ represented here as the wine. And the freedom to carry that wine, the freedom to take this covenant and take it with us and carry it around has a responsibility. It is a serious responsibility. Not just to take it and say, I've got mine. Now I'm going to go hide in a bunker until this all blows over. The responsibility is to take that and share it and find people that we can share it and find people who desperately need what this has to offer. That is our responsibility. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you sent your son into this world with a new thing that we are no longer tethered to, we are no longer bound by, we are no longer restricted to the apparatus of the old thing, which is so burdensome. But we have the freedom because we have the covenant in our hearts. We are the vessel of the new covenant now. And we carry that into the world. So Father, I repent of all those times where I have said, I've got mine, you go find yours. Lord, it's my responsibility to share this new thing with everyone so that they can taste and they can see and they can have the freedom that comes in knowing you. So Father, any time that I have had that opportunity and I have walked past it, thinking that's somebody else's job, Lord, I repent before you. And I ask you, Father, to help me to live in that freedom every day, that freedom that doesn't say, I'm going to mourn until something better comes along. Lord, help me to rejoice every day. Help me to rejoice in this day, no matter the trials, no matter the difficulties that come my way, because you have already poured out your blood for me. And that blood gives me life wherever I am. And that life is my responsibility to share that with others. So Father, help me. Through your Holy Spirit, help me. See those people who need what you have. Help give me the boldness to share with them. Give me the strength to do what you are calling me to do. Without you, Lord, I am nothing. With you, with you I can do everything. Help me to be where you need me. And I will say yes when you present me with an opportunity to share who you are with this world. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together right now. The wine of the new covenant that we talk about in this parable is represented or represents the blood of Christ. And that blood of Christ is what washes us clean, is what reconciles us. And so when we take communion together, however we do it, if you're out there at home, you need an element that represents the body of Christ broken for you, given up for you. And the blood of Christ that then is what cleanses you from sin, reconciles you to the Father. All you need are two elements that represent those. We have the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers you can serve yourself. Pastor Gabe and I will be up front here and we have wine. We'd be happy to serve you. But when we do this, it is not dead ritual. 
If it is dead ritual to you, I recommend that you don't do it. Think about what it means. Every time you take communion, you are saying, yes, the blood of the new covenant cleanses me and it resides in me now. And I'm saying yes to the mission that Christ gave me, which is to share that with the world. So it's not just a, I'm doing this and, and yay, I'm covered. It's fire insurance. We do this and we say, yes, I will align myself with your mission, Christ, which is to share the knowledge of you throughout the world. And when we take communion, we do that every single time. So feel free as we, uh, as we begin worship here and we listen to this music, let it soak into your heart. Sit and just pray if you need to. We have a prayer team in the back. If you need prayer, for, for healing, if you need prayer, for reconciliation, if you need, if you just need the comfort of the Lord and somebody to pray with you, we have a prayer team in the back. Look for the lanyard. Listen to the worship music. Let it soak over you. Just wash in that, in that feeling that it gives you when you know you're worshiping before the Lord. And then feel free to move around and take communion together, but with an understanding of what your mission from that point forward is. Because when you do that, you're accepting that mission. Amen? Thank you, church.